Hello members, welcome back to Joan of Arc. And the king cries forward. In my double quality of page and secretary, I followed Joan to the council. She entered that presence with the bearing of a grieved goddess. What was become of the volatile child that so lately was enchanted with a ribbon and suffocated with laughter over the distress of a foolish peasant who had stormed a funeral on the back of a bee-strong bull? One may not guess. Simply it was gone, and had left no sign. She moved straight to the council table and stood. Her glance swept from face to face there, and where it fell, these lit it as with a torch, those it scorched as with a brand. She knew where to strike. She indicated the generals with a nod and said, My business is not with you. You have not craved a council of war. Then she turned towards the king's privy council and continued, No, it is with you, a council of war. It is amazing. There is but one thing to do, and only one. And, lo, ye call a council of war. Councils of war have been no value but to decide between two or several doubtful courses. But a council of war, when there is only one course. Conceive of a man in a boat and his family in the water, and he goes out among his friends to ask what he would better do. A council of war, name of God, to determine what. She stopped, and turned till her eyes rested upon the face of La Domelle. And so she stood, silent, measuring him, the excitement in all the faces burning steadily higher and higher, and all pulses heating faster and faster. And then she said, with deliberation, Every sane man whose loyalty is to his king and not to a show and a pretense knows that there is but one rational thing before us, the march upon Paris. Down came the fist of La Haye with an approving crash upon the table. L'Astremont turned white with anger, but he pulled himself firmly together and held his peace. The king's lazy blood was stirred and his eyes kindled finally for the spirit of war was away down in him somewhere, and a frank, bold speech always found it, and made it tingle gladsomely. Joan waited to see if the chief minister might wish to defend this position or his position, but he was experienced and wise, and not a man to waste his forces where the current was against him. He would wait. The king's private ear would be at his disposal by and by. That pious fox, the Chancellor of France, took the word now. He washed his soft hands together, smiling persuasively, and said to Joan, Would it be courteous, Your Excellency, to move abruptly from here without waiting for an answer from the Duke of Burgundy? You may not know that we are negotiating with His Highness, and that there is likely to be a fortnight's truce between us and on his part, I pledge to deliver Paris into our hands without the cost of blowing the fatigue of a march hither. Joan turned to him and said gravely, This is not a confessional, my lord. You are not obliged to expose that shame here. The chan Chancellor's face reddened and he retorted, Shame? What is there shameful, shameful about it, he managed to sputter. Joan answered in a level, 
passionless tones. One may describe it without hunting far for words. I know of this poor comedy. My lord, although it was not intended that I should know, it is to the credit of the devisers of it. And, well, they tried to conceal it, this comedy, whose text and impulse are describable in two words. The Chancellor spoke up with the fine irony in his manner. Indeed, and will your excellency be good enough to utter them? Cowardice and treachery. The fists of all the generals came down this time, and again the king's eyes sparked with pleasure. The Chancellor sprang to his feet and appealed to his majesty. Sire, I claim your protection. But the king waved him to his seat again, saying, Peace. She has a right to be consulted before that thing was undertaken, since it concerned war as well as politics. It is but just she be heard upon it now. The Chancellor sat down, trembling with indignation, and remarked to Joan, Out of charity, I will consider you did not know who devised this measure, which you condemn in candid language. Save your charity for another occasion, my lord, said Joan, as calmly as before. Whenever anything is done to injure the interests and, well, degrade the honour of France, all but the dead know how to name the two conspirators in chief. Sir, sire, this insinuation... It is not an insinuation, my lord, said Joan placidly. It is a charge. I bring it against the king's chief minister and his chancellor. Both men were on their feet now, insisting that the king modify Joan's frankness, but he was not minded to do it. His ordinary counsels were stale, stale water. His spirit was drinking wine now, and his taste of it was good, he said. Sit and be patient. What is fair, one must in fairness be allowed to the other. Consider and be just. When have you two spared her? What dark charges and harsh names have you withheld when you spoke of her? Then he added, with a veiled twinkle in his eyes, If these are offences, I see no particular difference between them, except that she says her odd things to your faces, whereas you say yours behind her back. He was pleased with that neat shot, and the way it shriveled those two people up, and made Lahair laugh out loud, and the other generals softly quake and chuckle. Joan's tranquillity resumed. From the first, we have been hindered by this policy of shilly-shally, this fashion of counselling and counselling and counselling, where no counselling is needed, but only fighting. We took Orleans on the 8th of May, and could have cleared the region round about in three days, and saved the slaughter of Pataille. We could have been in Reims six weeks ago, and in Paris now, and would see the last Englishman pass out of France in half a year. But we struck no blow after Orleans, but went off into the country, what for? Ostensibly, to hold councils, really to give Bedford time to send his reinforcements to Talbot, which he did and Pataille had to be fought. After Pataille, more counselling, more waste of precious time. Oh, my king, I would that you would be persuaded. 
as she began to warm up now. Once more, we have our opportunity. If we rise and strike, all is well. <sighs> Bid me march upon Paris. In twenty days it shall be yours, and in six months all France. Here is half a year's work before us. If this chance be wasted, I give you twenty years. Do it in. Speak the word, O gentle king. Speak but the one. I cry you mercy, interrupted the chancellor, who saw a dangerous enthusiasm rising in the king's face. March upon Paris, does your excellency forget that the way bristles with English strongholds? Mm, that for your stringlish, English strongholds, Jonas snapped, her fingers scornfully. From Gien? And whither? To Reims? What bristle between? English strongholds? What are they now? French ones, and they never cost a blow. Here applause broke out from the group of generals, and Joan had to pause a moment to let it subside. Yes, English strongholds bristled before us. Now French ones bristle behind us. What is the argument? A child can read it. The strongholds between us and Paris are garrisoned by no new breed of English, but by the same breed as these others, with the same fears, the same questionings, the same weaknesses, the same disposition. To see the heavy hand of God descending upon them, we have but to march, on the instant, and they are ours. Paris is ours, France is ours. Give the word, O my king, command your servant to. Stay, cried the Chancellor, it will be madness to put our affront upon this highness, the Duke of Burgundy, by the treaty which of every hope to make with him. Oh, the treaty which we hope to make with him. He has scorned you for years and defied you. It is your subtle persuasions that have softened his manners and beguiled him to listen to proposals. No, it was blows, the blows which we gave him. That is the only teaching that the sturdy rebel can understand. What does he care for wind? The treaty which we hope to make with him a lack. He deliver Paris. There's no pauper in the land that is less able to do it. He deliver Paris. Ugh, that would make great for Bedford's smile, wouldn't it? Oh, the pitiful pretext. The blind can see that, that this thin papalair with its fifty-day troops has no purpose but to give Bedford time to hurry forward his forces against us. More treachery, always treachery. We call a council of war. We've nothing to counsel about. But Bedford calls no council to teach him what our course is. He knows what he would do in our place. He would hang his traitors and march upon Paris. O gentle king, rouse. The way is open. Paris beckons. France implores. Speak, and we. Sire, it is madness, sheer madness. Your Excellency, we cannot, we, we must not, we must not, we cannot go back from what we have done. We have proposed to treat, and must treat with the Duke of Burgundy. And we will, said Joan. Uh, how? At the point of the lance. The house rose to a man, all that had France, French hearts anyway, and let go the crack of applause that leapt up. And in the midst of it, one heard Lahaya growl out, at the point of the lance, by God, that is music. The king got up too, and drew his sword, 
and took it by blade and strode to Joan and delivered the hilt of it into her hand, saying, There, the king surrenders, carry it to Paris. And so the applause burst out again, and the historical council of war that had bred so many legends was finally over. And that's the next part of Joan of Arc. They will march again, this time to take Paris. Hmm. I uh, definitely want to know what happens properly on this bit. And when I say that, what I mean is when you are reading it from history books, you are told the basics and the battle and the bare principle of things. When you are reading it like this from an ancestor's journal, you are reading things the history books will never put in there. You're reading words that were said that the history books simply just wouldn't get right or wouldn't know. They can give you details, whens, wheres, an estimate maybe. They can give you who won, who did not. They cannot give you the emotion in one's journal. The things that were done, the things that were said, that don't belong to history, are not in history books. They are in people's journals. That's why journals are so important. Thank you for listening to this part of Joan of Arc. Many blessings.